the following podcast is part of the 6040 Network. Hello and welcome to Everything Small Business, your shortcut to start, build, manage and grow your small business. I'm Cherie and in today's episode, I sit down with Luis De Jesus from Mex Engineering as part of our new mini-series called Share Your Small Business Story. In this episode, we chat with Lewis about pronouncing his name, his view on government grants and assistance in the high-tech space, and just what he thinks government could be doing, and choosing to build a company in an industry new to the Gold Coast, and much more. We talked a little bit more about, I guess, the passion for automation, or for robotics more so, but did you find that you chose the manufacturing side of the automation and the robotics, or did it choose you? Well, it's sort of, I guess it's an interesting story. When I first uh, finished my tertiary education, I worked for IBM and I was in charge of some development of, of some of their programming uh, manufacturing machines for doing SMT, which is service mount technology for making boards. We worked on some Cisco systems and doing making PC boards, putting the components on them. And we worked on developing like the whole program for the line for manufacturing. It wasn't in manufacturing, it was sort of in an area of development. So we would then look at, you know, different machines for vision, placing components. It was all very interesting to watch. And I was very interested in it. I thought I did learn about robotics in school and that's the course I took but that, that, that was what my education was but I always thought it, was, it wasn't I didn't know it was going to be on a, at a development level I assumed it was going to be working within the area improving looking at it, current machinery programming I, I didn't realize it was going to the level of, of developing then I was very young I was young when I finished school and I, I realized I see this machine working but I can do this better I know I can see exactly how it's operating but why did they do this why did they do this in a different way and then we started and that sort of got me thinking of different ways of making machinery and then I, then I left that business after a few years and I went and I started working for companies doing automation equipment and I did that for a few years before I came to Australia and that, that's where my, my interest started I started realizing all these opportunities of seeing customers needs and seeing them trying to work out how to do things so part of my philosophy that we teach all our engineers to when we're designing machines is looking for the right solution we're not trying to put a robot to do a task we're seeing what does your task require if it requires a robot, I can buy a robot from either ABB or another supplier. ABB is the number who we use, but we can buy a robot that can then programmed with some tooling and some guarding for safety to do a certain task. But sometimes that's not the right solution. Sometimes the solution is a dedicated machine that does a dedicated process. So we can develop that as well. I tend to tell customers, look, I can make my own robot if I wanted to. I just don't because you buy them. They're cost effective. They make sense. But I don't make that the only way, my only go-to tool. We can, well, the last machine we did for one of our big customers, it had over 60 axes of servo motors. That's 60 individual axes of servo plus a lot more pneumatics and more motion. But that was just servo axes plus about six robots as well. That's just one big machine doing a task. And that was just to do lots of different tasks, but created a but it ended up with an end product that the customer wanted. That was the right way of developing that process. Do you find it's harder to get engineers? Because, I mean, you've obviously got a hardware component that needs to work, but also the software has to drive it. So it seems to me that a lot of the education now is that they're separated. They're not really together. Well, yeah, yes and no. When I did school, it was very separate. It was mechanical and there was electrical and then there was programming, which sometimes fell under IT. These days, there's a course that they're now doing called mechatronics, which sort of combines all that to a different level. I mean, uh, it depends on where you what you major in, but the mechatronics tends to be, a lot of my engineers are mechatronics engineers. A couple are mechanical, a couple are electrical. And I find the mechatronics is really a good mix of 
enough of the mechanical and the electrical because no solution. I mean, if you look at an old machine, it was cams and very mechanical system with some electrics plugged onto it. And a lot of machine companies still work that way where they'll develop things mechanically and then electrically to do the electrics in tandem, but afterwards, so sort of as not necessarily as part of the development where we like to take a holistic approach. Is this system that we need to develop, is the solution mechanical? Is it what type of drive system? Are we using servos? Are we using pneumatics? Are we using hydraulics? What are the different mechanisms are we going to use to get the result that we want? And therefore, you need to think of both things. They don't work independently. They're very important. You know, the size of the servo with the gearbox and the inertia gives you the responsiveness of the system. So then you need to, when you, while you're designing it, you need to look at motion and have the programmability. How's it going to work? How is it going to just talk to a database if that's what we're doing? How fast does it need to react? How does it need to adjust? And all these things are taken into account at the very early stages of design. So, so we very much are a holistic approach of design. So the electrics, the program, the mechanical, all of them at the same time. So do you build in artificial intelligence then in the thinking process? Or this is still more, I guess, like a direct thing? And is that something where you'll go in the future? So with our artificial intelligence, uh, and, and I'm not an expert on artificial intelligence, we don't really get involved in that. Our machines have, um, there's no learning necessarily in them, but they do make decisions based on programming and based on criteria that, that we set out. So there are decision-making processes. I wouldn't call that AI. There's not intelligence in there. There's no learning sort of algorithms. So, so we're, we're not using that level of learning. We, we do use um, MARs, so mobile autonomous robots in our system. So a way of automating a plant may be just how to get product from point A to point B. Because sometimes the product flow uh, works better when you have, let's say we're going to do an automatic machine here and the part that it makes has to go to another station on the other side of the factory or maybe an option for three or four stations because what we look at is try to give customers flexibility. There's an old, people think that automation only works for high volume. It used to. It changes. I mean, I built a machine for New Zealand for doing milk processing, for example. We did a whole line, about 50 meters of conveyor, a couple of debaggers, quite a large system, doing about half the plant of automation. So we managed the bottles from supply all the way to the filler. Now, our changeover from anything from a 250 ml small bottle of milk to a three liter milk for the whole line, every piece of equipment is under 26 seconds. You push a button, it just changes. No way. Don't touch a thing. So if my customer doesn't, he doesn't have to batch things. He can change things on the fly. I can have bottles coming out right after the, one after the other. I can, I'll, I'll have a gap for safety, make sure I don't mix bottles. I can bring the next size bottle in because wow. everything adjusts automatically. So if you think that way, you can now get back to what's one of the manufacturing principles. It's called the Toyota principle, which is one, one piece flow, which is ideally, if your setup time is zero, whether you make one or a million, your cost per product is exactly the same. Therefore, why stock it? Therefore, why force people to buy the one same thing? So this isn't always possible. It's very difficult to get, a, get things to work with one, but that fundamental is important. And we always try to work with our machines to be, Australia gives us an advantage. We're a small country. And for example, that line, I'll go back to that line for a second. It's really interesting because that line was half supplied by us, half supplied by a company that, that came from Europe, all the fillers. The filler takes like half an hour to change over. We take 20 seconds because they're used to a different market. Their machine has tooling and everything else because they're used to running two liter milk all week or only. They don't change product because they have so much volume. They can have four or five different production lines, each one for each size bottle. In Australia and New Zealand, we can't do that. We're small. We change product over over and over again. So then having that flexibility is quite important and it's quite unique to us. So then we're taking advantage of that within our automation. So we allow things to change really quickly. So customers can do smaller runs, more adaptive runs. And back to my point with MARs, mobile autonomous robots, they work really well because sometimes Let's say you're packaging something and your customer wants it labeled and wrapped and wrapped in, in beautiful pink paper for whatever reason. Well, you can do that. You can say, look, we'll offer you that. Well, this AMAR will take this robot to a standard wrapper 
when anyone else be wrapped that way. But if you wanted something else on it, we'll develop a station that will take it to that station just for you. So by having this autonomous vehicle in the middle, you can then start selecting what processes it can do afterwards. And this does happen because some, for example, when you do a pallet of bottles, you might just strap it because it's staying in your warehouse. You may also need to wrap it because you're going to send it on a truck to go to a different factory. So for, for stability or for cleanliness, you might want to wrap a stress strap around it. So in that process, the machine can exit the same product and then it can be taken to two different places. Depends on whether it needs to be strapped or wrapped or, 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 or palletized on a truck or put it into a warehouse. So this sort of flexibility allows you to do a really adaptive, not to say smart factory, more of adaptive factory. So you can then make your manufacturing suit your customers. Which is so much better because, I mean, I think that a lot of the discussion about manufacturing is, A, it's cost prohibitive and that usually the inputs of labour required are either difficulty or they're highly skilled and therefore it becomes challenging to find people to fill those gaps when it is such a specialty area. But this sort of automation, although the upfront cost of investment would be quite substantial and, of of course, knowing that the process flow that you're putting it into is correct, I mean, the potential for that's enormous. Yes, and your your paybacks are normally quite good. I mean, look at, at what the product can make. So if you look at the value of what it can produce, as long as the market's there, then you normally find that there's it's quite a, a cost-effective way of doing my manufacturing. And in a lot of cases, if you plan for it at the beginning, you can plan the right product, not just the one that can be done inexpensively or by hand in, in some cases, because the automation allows you to make what's required. I never want my customer to change their manufacturing to suit automation. I want to develop the right automation to do whatever makes them unique big business. Some customers will have products that they make are quite unique. I don't want that to change. Oh, you know, we need to make this manufacturing, we need to make automated, so let's consolidate all our ranges. Are you sure you want to do that? What makes you unique is to be able to supply all that range. Once you consolidate, now you compete with other people overseas who are going to just do things simple and in volume. Is that where you want to go? You want to be the unique person who can just still do things competitively, but have the variety. And we can assist with that. And we have in many cases, uh, without saying names, I can tell you lots of examples of customers we've done those things for. We give them full, 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 full flexibility within their product range and how they make things, but then they're still doing it fully automatically. Yeah, that's, um, that's actually really impressive. Why did you choose the Gold Coast then to open a business? Well, when, when we, myself and my wife moved to Australia back in 99, we lived in Brisbane for a couple of years. And when we decided to open up a business, um, actually first we moved to the Gold Coast and decided this is a great place to have a business. Um, look, I look at the Gold Coast and I see beautiful beaches. We enjoy the outdoors. We moved from Canada because we're outdoor people. We enjoyed the beautiful weather. And, um, you know, the beaches are beautiful. We have beautiful mountains, we have subtropical rainforests. We have everything around here. What a great place to raise a family and to have that good work, work-life balance. I felt those was the right place to put a business um, because I think I need to attract world-class engineers to do what we do and work in a great environment. We want to provide the best technology for them to work with it within our business, but then give them a beautiful environment to enjoy their weekends, enjoy their time with their family. So, so you like, it's a great place to live and work. It's, to me, it should be the next tech hub of Australia. Well, why not? Yeah, we'd um, like to see the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, it is, it's got the right, it's got the right environment to support that sort of low impact, not a dirty industry, but all your clean industry, your high-tech industries. Mm-hmm. So I guess what are the growth plans then from here? Well, look, we've expanded our factory last year, but a year and a half ago, we double-doubled. We took down the wall between our two factories and made one big factory. We're here for another another three years in our lease, and then we'll, we'll see where we go. The plans would be to maybe even double in size again and go into a much bigger factory. I'd, I'd love to keep growing mechs in the way I see, just like I like making state-of-the-art machinery. We also want to create a state-of-the-art state of working environment for our staff. You know, one of my goals is organic cafeteria for the staff. 
Everyone has great food. Again, part of the mix of, of a great work environment. To have an integrated gym so my staff can have to have a break. You know, we, we do work in a high-paced industry where there's you know, a lot of thinking. Things can be a bit hard, stressful sometimes, a lot of work to do. So it's good to have a relief of that when, when it's required. And yeah, so create a nice work environment, which, which is really important for, for allowing for creativity. And sort of if we want to make world's best machines, we need to have a world's best uh, work environment as well. So when you chose to do this sort of thing, did you target your customers first? Like, did you say, I think that I could solve their problems or was it actually that you sort of opened up shop and said, I'm here in the marketplace, let's do business? It started slowly with um, customers. I knew that, you know, asked me to develop a machine for them. So I did that. You know, I started by myself working from home uh, seven, 16 years ago or so. And then, you know, slowly got a couple bigger jobs. Some wanted some more automation. Got a small factory up in Yetla. Got a bigger factory in Yetla after that, after about a year or two. Got a few more staff. It just slowly grew with, you know, we build, we really work on that state-of-the-art machinery, really advanced. Like, I would like to call it proper automation, really well-thought-out automation. That is not just a mechanized process, but really how do you improve your business? That, that's always been our focus. And I think that's led to, you know, word of mouth. We don't really advertise, but hear about us. We do, we, we keep our customers. We, we do what we can to make to make sure the machines are always successful. We support them. We haven't ever had a, f- a failed process of a machine. Everything's always worked. And that's important. And if it doesn't, we, we keep on, if things aren't 100% as we would like them, then we do what needs to be done to, to get it to where, where it needs to go. So it's important to have, to end up with the right, right result at the end. So how did you find the transition then from, I guess, a solopreneur or a single man person into actually moving into the factory and then taking on staff? It was a slow process. I, I sort of done over it. I've always grown organically. I wasn't much of a business to go out and borrow a bunch of money and try to grow fast. It was more take on some new projects, hire another staff, grow, do that project, take on another bigger project, and then maybe not another couple of staff. It slowly grew over the years, a couple of staff a year or so. And sometimes a little bit more when things got really busy, but generally speaking, just an organic growth. So it kind of just happened. <laughs> so basically when you came to the coast, has it been working with the council here? Do you do directly engage with them or is it more with sort of government like Oz Industry or? We do that with, yes, we do engage with all, with all industry and, and local council. We've been involved in some planning sessions with them as well in terms of how we see the Gold Coast and what we think we'd like to see some more of. I'm a big advocate of our own sort of high-tech hub would be great. Something nice with some like-minded businesses. And look, the street we're on is quite good. It's a, quite a nice big business sort of street, which I think is, is nice. A technology hub would definitely be useful. I think what they've done around Griffith with the medical hub there, I think that, that's a great plan. And we did consider if that was a good place for billboards but we're just too big, a little bit too big for that area. But I like the idea of having restaurants and having a beautiful area that guys can go out, socialize and have a bit of a break. I think that's, that's great. It's great to have those areas where people can mingle and talk and, and relax. So it's almost like a big campus setting, but with multiple businesses all forming yeah. part of it. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I think that, like, because I remember Technology Park because I, I was born on the coast. So when this place first opened, it used to be in the boondocks. This was nothing was here. So seeing it grow now into a lot of the different types of businesses has actually been very cool. Yeah, no, I, I remember I, I looked at um, when this land was still all available here. I did consider building a factory at the time, but then I decided building would spend money on computers, staff, and hardware. You normally spend stuff on things that no one else can do. I can lease a building. Well, that makes sense. And, you know, maybe next few years we'll, we'll change that. But for now, it's been the right growth path for us because we do we do invest quite significantly in software and, and hardware to allow us to do the sort of state-of-the-art work that we do. And I imagine a lot of the stuff isn't necessarily just flat out off the shelf. It has to be fairly tailored for what you're trying to do with it. 
Yes, I mean, in terms of, yeah, look, we, computers and so forth, you can buy pretty powerful ones, we buy as powerful as we can get, big screens, but the work that we, things that we develop, we, we use very high-end software to design everything and simulations when required, so we can simulate things, we can do things, we, we can work within an artificial world as much as for planning and for design. And once it all works artificially, then we can actually then take the simulation that we can actually make it, which is just reducing risk. It also means that we make the right solution. So we're not just building things and kind of changing after we built it. We're actually planning what we want and then develop and then making what we want. Mm. Well, most of the success really is in the planning, isn't it? It's easier to change a line on a computer screen. <laughs> yeah, look, I've always believed the 80-20 rule, 80% preparation, 20% delivery. really is plan, 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 plan. Get it all right. And you're right because, you see, once you've gone down, or let's say you're making something, you've designed it, once that's there, I mean, if, if you want to do a slight change after you built it, you can, but there's slight changes, not fundamental changes. But on the screen, you can make a fundamental change. It's just different component, moving some parts around on screen, changing some mounts, but it's quite easy. But once it's built, it's too difficult. So what happens is if you do have to make a drastic change, there's more compromising to be made because it's already been built. Mm. Where on the screen, there's very little compromises. You can change anything. Yeah. yeah. So with COVID, has that impacted your business at all? Yeah, only with customers delaying orders sometimes because they're not unsure or they're just moving around. But besides that, we've been pretty busy. But COVID's been good for us. I mean, it didn't impact us directly. I saw some impact on components. We can't get parts sometimes. Not only in Australia, but overseas. There's been a, you might have heard of these Supply chip shortages chain. and yeah. transport's a nightmare. So that's probably hurt us a bit where we just can't get things done. But normally we'd build a machine in, you know, three to six months. Now it's like six to 12 months. Oh, okay. So it's, I just can't get parts. And not much I can do about it. Uh, you know, we, we try to find replacements, but things change quickly too, especially on a lot of the, the high tech. Anything with a microchip at the moment is problematic. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of things from valve banks to motors, controls, drives. So is that an industry you think something as a country as small as Australia actually could step into? To produce and manufacture, or that's not that's out of the realms. I don't know. I've, I've asked government that question because I because I know they're looking at building companies in the sort of chip space all, all in different countries. I think, I think Japan's looking into it in the U.S. Because Taiwan's the main supplier at the time, I believe. So I think it's not it's not an area that they're looking into, but they should because mm-hmm. I think it'd be great for us. You know, we have space. We can de- to definitely invest. It's up to us to sort of invest. I've never been a much of a, I don't have a problem with investing in the right areas. I think the government spends money to do things like make new industries. I think that's all a positive thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's the right place to spend money. If you're going to borrow money, that's what you do. It's great industries. Yeah. What's your view then on sort of government grants potentially distorting outcomes? Look, I think, I think the grants are, they're great on one hand, but they need to be processed much faster. I think the, the fact that they delay them is hurtful for the industry because you're basically giving companies hope to receiving a grant and then they don't know the answer for too long. And therefore, they're not going to make a decision because they don't want to risk not being able to be entitled to the grant that they've applied for because they've started spending money already. So what they do is they do nothing. All you sometimes do is you stagnate things. So I think grants can be great if they're done properly and they've had some nice ones come out, but they need to be processed quickly. And I guess I understand the government trying to make sure it does the right thing all the time. But I tend to take the 80 rule again. If they administer them faster and they get some of them, they maybe could have given somebody else, but at least you got 80% of them right. Mm-hmm. And I, I still think that's better than making everybody wait too long and then maybe causing other issues. And we have had pro- projects put on hold because of that. Customers applied for grants, and hoping to get them and they'll wait. And then the, the, what could happen is they, they could wait too many months, you know, six months and go, oh, geez, now it's not worth it anymore because the project's going to be over in a year and I'm not sure if it's going to get the payback anymore. So maybe next time. Yeah. And that happened a couple of times already. So that has happened. Where were the grants 
waiting for the grants actually caused a project that would have been just an order because the customer had a need for it and they could justify it. But then once the grant is there, they go, hey, I'm going to make a grant. So maybe I can save some money. It is something that has to be balanced and it has to be understood. I think I've mentioned this to the government before for the same reasons as it's just something that I like their, um, I think grants are great, but I also like their, the government backed schemes where they help businesses borrow money from the bank so that they can borrow based on a business plan that makes sense. But also the government then can help with security because I don't think Australia has always been known as, as a very entrepreneurial country in that way where the banks are very easy to lend money because they don't. No, they, um, don't. they always want a security against, against things that, you know, as a business, as an entrepreneur, you don't always have the, you see the vision, but trying to get there may be difficult sometimes. And I think have, opening those doorways to allow entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurial and grow their business creates opportunity. Mm. And I believe the government is doing the right thing now where it's actually back doing some government back guarantees where businesses can grow. And I think there's always a little bit of risk, but I think the gains are much bigger than the risks. Yeah. And you'll see some businesses taking that up um, and then growing and then creating more jobs, more opportunities, um, creating new industries for Australia. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I mean, as you can imagine, we've got our own views about different types of programs, you know, where the government should be involved in some of them, um, particularly in things like funding spaces, like they shouldn't, perhaps they're not best served to try to pick winners. Perhaps they're better off served to go with the administrative or the bureaucratic processes and process these things much faster so that they can get out and become a multiplier in the community. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. And I'd like to build, I mean, like when I started MEX, I mean, I've never planned to be a small business. I always planned to be world leader you know you have to aim big i guess and we've always positioned ourselves that way and, and we've just we've been growing steadily but that's always a, with that plan to be to be as big as you can because you have the right business model you have the right process in place you can do the right type of equipment why not having the opportunities to allow you to do that are great do you think on that then is your business actually scalable or do you have a quite high reliance on skilled and technical staff no, no, we are quite scalable. We can, we can grow quite quickly. So we do have a reliance on staff, but where processes allow those things to occur in a quite a, a seamless manner. So we can grow at a quite a good, good rate if I need to. We have projects coming in that can be quite big. So we have uh, on occasion grown quite rapidly to suit a certain project. So design phase can be long, but it all comes down to the size of the project and the length of the project. Because the project, if it's given enough time to be processed, then as a business, you don't have to grow that fast in terms of engineering design, but you can bring in staff to do assessment. You have managers who manage the build. We have fully documented everything anyway. So we, like I said, 80, 20, it's been 80% preparation. So everything's fully designed, fully drawn, fully documented. So assembly can be, you can hire staff in and do even casual staff to um, as labor hire on a short-term basis to fill a gap. If, if you're really busy for a couple of months doing the build. So it's the design part that, that is the one that's most critical that you have the right staff for all those on. Okay. And would you say then that that makes your business kind of project-based? So even though you've got this overarching organization that's static, the projects that you take on allow you to actually expand and grow or become quite agile, I guess, in sizing those specific project requirements? Yeah, look, and I would say over the years, even so, sometimes we've, had, we've taken on some pretty big projects over the last few years, and then we've grown by a few staff for that project. But then what ends up happening is those staff stay we got sales, 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 small projects. And then we, so we grow and we kind of stay there. And then you grow again and stay there. With the exception with maybe two or three labor hire that we might say, okay, just for a short time, do a certain build. But sometimes that, and they've happened in the past where they, they then become full-time employees. So there's opportunities. So I think with all these sort of changes, the opportunities are we project-based? Yes, to a certain extent, but we do have some standard machines as well. And we're developing that range. So we are currently building uh, some robotic weld systems that will be a stock machine for us. So we, we do them all the time anyways for customers. And we've tried to build them for stock in the past, but they don't really get bought before they're built. But the plan is now to try to keep one on the shelf all the time. 
I guess that's kind of akin to like fast brick robotics or something like that, which does a specific task of all that one bricklaying. Yeah. And then they're trying to adapt it for sort of NASA applications of, you know, whether it could be used in a a different setting. Yeah. And I guess that's true. Like robotic welding is very flexible. You end up with the robotics that can do pretty well weld anything, whether you're welding just your steels or aluminiums or other exotic metals. It sort of depends on what kind of power supply you decide. But the general system is the same. So I, I could have the system on the shelf and then just say, okay, I'll upgrade the, the power source for you. Or the one we use it was either Fronis or Lorch, depending on whether it's a defense contract or, or whether it's, it's more domestic. And that gives you flexibility to weld your aluminiums or your steels. It just depends on which machine I decide. So that can be changed later on. If you might have one thing on the shelf and then stock, we can change it. So. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. So I guess, have you got any tips or suggestions for people who might want to be looking to move into a more of a high-tech space and how they can navigate around certain areas? Looking into this space, I mean, you mean from a manufacturing point of view? Or from manufacturing, a, yeah. Yeah, so I think for us, we offer free consultations. We encourage people to contact us. We'll come out to site. We'll take a look at what they're doing. We'll discuss the processes, what's possible. Sometimes we can automate exactly what you have. Sometimes we might suggest, look, this is automatable, but if you change a couple of things back here, it makes the process much smoother. So there's a, yes, and, and that's something we could definitely talk to our customers through. And look, our goal is to look at finding better ways to automate or, or better ways to manufacture, more efficient ways to automate manufacture. And what do you think then are the, or do you believe are the trends in automation or robotics say over the next 10 years? Look, Industry 4.0 has, has got a, a lot of good, the way it positions things are, is correct. So it isn't just automation. Automation, I normally say if you look, automation has been going on for a long time. So if, if you're looking at your basic automation, that's that's old school. More advanced things. Now, like when we do automated tests, labs and stuff, we get data from database directly, which tells us what to do. We then do it. Then when we're done doing the tasks, we then send it back to the database with the results. So people aren't involved, just done automatically as required. So you can take this, in this case, it's for concrete testing. For, for, for core samples, we do that all automatically. So we store them, we pull them out when required, we do some operations to them, then we test them and send results back. So that interaction with databases is quite useful. So you're not relying on a person picking a job. It can be done automatically. It can be done based on an RP system, which is a, or an ERP system that runs the business. And that can be done automatically. So that you're less, things can be much more efficient. So then you can decide then have algorithms that decide when do you make things together for efficiencies. You store the data of how they were made. So if you do have a problem in quality on something, you can go back, hmm, we have quality on this batch. What went wrong? Look at all the data. So we're storing all the data where how it was made, how long it took, the forces being used, everything. You can say, hang on a second, when this part was made, this particular force was still within within acceptable range as a specification, but we had failures. So maybe we need to tighten that range. Maybe that isn't an acceptable range anymore. So these decisions can be made, but if you don't know why, then you're running blind. You're not being able to do those fine adjustments. You know, even fine cost adjustments. How are things, you know, are you putting too much material in things because you don't know how they've been made, where you can then start fine-tuning exactly how to make something, what is required. When you're talking about databases, is that the client's own database or something that you create for them to sort of act as the interface? We do both. Okay. So we can talk to their database, we create an interface, or we do our own database, and then we send the data back to them as required. So it depends on how we want to manage it. Whether we want to manage the process within a localized database within our process, then send the data to their database, or we just use their database with uh, with an interface to determine what we do. I mean, the last one of the issues we did recently, we actually used the database interconnectivity as part of what's running the PLC. So the PLC is quite a large PLC, we have a lot, a lot of these 60-odd axes in this machine. And we record that product being processed through this quite a complex line at every stage. So you could pull that product out at any stage 
put it back in at any time and it'll continue where it left off. So no one's going to remember anything about it. And that's one of the advantages you get. So you can then pull things off if a process occurred. And for example, you might make a, a requirement that the forces don't exceed X amount. And if they do, you want to reject it. You want to see what happened. Let's say you reject a part. You reject up because it's a failure because you want someone to look and say, oh, is this still okay? Okay, hang on. This was a little bit too much force, but I can see it's fine. Bring it back in again and let it continue. So these, this ability to interact with the operator gives you the ability to make better decisions, to know when things are going wrong, know when things might need to be addressed or when everything's okay. So there's all this flexibility that you gain by the sort of interconnectivity with databases. So it's really an enhancement on the quality assurance process. Correct, correct. And that traceability of knowing how things are and recipes. I mean, we have recipes for everything. So when you make a product, it's a recipe. And then we always have a standard recipe. And then, yes, you are allowed to adjust your recipes within certain standards or certain password protection. So it allows the operators still to slightly improve the process that they want and then decide if that slight change that they've made during this production run should be saved as the newest newest recipe or we revert back to the old recipe that we had through the right dot document controls and process controls. But that's all possible with the system. And you keep track of the old revisions. You always go back and say, we made a, a change in settings and these are the changes you made and this is why we made them. And then you can then see, you can, that might work. Then you might find that that wasn't the right thing to do or, or that really improved things. You might want to say, this is definitely our new, our new standard. So this is the flexibility that you gain. But it's really helping businesses make true data-driven decisions about the actual products, how they're serving it, how they're delivering it. Yes, uh, all with creating the best product you can and serving their customers as best they can. So if we serve our customer by making the right equipment for them, it allows them to make serve their customers by making the best product they can for their customers. Yeah. And then gives a market advantage. Of course, that's actually, I've got to say, there's some really interesting sort of, I guess, outputs from the discussion. I didn't realize actually how much you did. And when I was looking at your website like a couple of days ago, like, okay, the future is essentially defense manufacturing. I'm like, okay, I can definitely see that, especially in this application. And obviously there's all this talk too about where is it going, where is it going for the future? So what would you say, I guess, is your big, hairy, audacious goal for MEX? I'm not going to talk about size. I think size is sort of irrelevant. I think it's just why I want to, I've always wanted to be an industry leading business that makes the best equipment, best automation systems, have some standard systems, really push the envelope of what's possible and really, really help my customers succeed is really what we're about. And then like, if that means that we're a thousand people company, great, that's amazing. I never want to lose focus on what's important, which is our customers, to make sure that we make the best system for them. Um, standardization sounds great sometimes, and sometimes it is good to have some standard machines, but I think sometimes what's required isn't standard. And, and you don't want to sacrifice what makes the customer's product unique or what makes them unique in the industry. Because then then once you lose that uniqueness, they've got to fight on other planes. So that might be cost or something else. And if you don't want to lose that. No, they just become a commodity and then Correct. that becomes the basis of comparison. Yes. Whereas if they retain that uniqueness, yeah. they're able to continue to forward. So part of my, our job is to work with our customers and really understand what makes their particular business unique and not sacrifice any of those things. And sometimes customers might go down a road of trying to do things because they think you need to do that in order to automate. And that may not be true. I always recommend talk to us first and let's talk to us what you're trying to do, show us what you're doing. And then maybe we can work out a way of giving you that flexibility. And maybe there is a consolidation that makes sense. Maybe there isn't. But I think it's a, it's a discussion that we're happy to have and then look at the process and give us some ideas. Yeah, that's really cool. And so I guess, small business owner, yes. what have you loved the most about this part of the journey? I love doing things the right way. See, I guess when you work for somebody, you got to follow whatever you've been told to do. And I guess I, being an entrepreneur and being someone who's excited about things, I love the ability to make 
my own decisions or as a business make decisions. And it's not, not always about money for me. It's, it's about, it's about the right decision. I'm, I'm happy to lose money on our job to get it right because it looks good. When I want to lose money, I mean, not make profit, but you can't lose money too often, but, but you want to do it right. It's really nice to make something say, this is what's possible. You take away all the barriers and really make a machine that or a system that really solves problems and it opens opportunities up for my, my customers. Yeah. Great. And what would you say, do you have any, I guess, overarching tips for people who might be thinking about going into small business? Yeah, I think it, it can be great. You have a unique product and a unique opportunity. Then if you've got passion, I think success will find you. You just need to be the best at what you do and do it with heart. Do it because you care. Do it amazing. I always tell all my staff, it doesn't matter what job you do in life. Do it amazing. Do it as best as you can. It doesn't matter what job it is. Nothing's beneath anybody. It's all important work. All that's been done, but do it with pride and do it properly. Yeah. And, and like you care. That's true when you design. It's true when you clean the floors. It's true when you run a business. It's true for everything. And is there anything that you'd like, I guess, any listeners to know about either you or the business here? Yeah, look, we're happy to talk to anybody about automation. And, uh, you know, if they're happy to call Max Engineering here, here in, in Arundel. Uh, happy to see you. Look at what you're doing. Love to have a chat about your business and, and how we can automate it and look at opportunities. Sometimes it might be just they're not sure what's possible. And sometimes people just don't know what's possible. And I sometimes tell customers, they've asked me, I want to know if I can do this. And I normally say, look, honestly, these days, the if is not really a question. You can pretty well do almost anything. It may not be financially viable. It may not be the right decision. There might be other reasons why not to do it, but you can almost do almost anything these days. I just with the right, right technology and the right thought processes to develop the right process, you can do almost anything. So, I mean, most systems, yes, you can automate almost anything, but let's work out what's the right thing to do for you. Cool. Well, I guess that's pretty much it for today. Yeah, that's been really great. Thanks heaps. Like actually, there was a lot out of that that I was... Um quite intrigued by to be honest where can people find your business online so under um, mex.com.au so www.mexx.com.au and that's us and um, that will give you all the contact details to contact other sales or just contact the office and someone will get a hold of you we'll come out and see myself my engineering my development manager will come out and take a look at what you're doing and see how we can help that's fantastic thank you heaps Well, that's everything small business for today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to stay up to date with our show, please subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. If you know someone who might enjoy this podcast, please share it with them or share it on your socials and tag us. Until next time, this is everything small business.